All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, so, as Jana said earlier, this is our third week now in our series on the book of Revelation, where we've been looking at Jesus' messages to seven churches in the Roman Empire in the first century. And we've been asking ourselves what we can learn from these messages for our church today. Now, I want to remind us that when we first started talking about John's vision of Jesus that he writes about here in Revelation, when he first sees Jesus, Jesus is standing among seven lampstands, right? And Jesus explains that these seven lampstands are symbols of the seven churches that he's going to be writing to. Uh, that's why in this promotional image that I've made for our series that I use to promote on social media and everything, there's... Uh, this picture here of a lamp on a stand, because that lamp on a stand is supposed to be symbolic of a church. Now, I want to remind us, why are the churches represented by lampstands? We talked about this a little two weeks ago. Why is that? The reason is because, as Jesus said, churches are supposed to be the light of the world. His disciples are supposed to be the light of the world. And what does that mean? That means that where there is despair, we are supposed to bring hope. Where there are lies, we are supposed to bring truth. Where there is hate, we are supposed to bring love. Where there is lostness, we are supposed to bring spiritual illumination. The analogy that I like to use is that the church is supposed to be like a lighthouse. And what does a lighthouse do? Well, a lighthouse flashes the light, and as the light flashes, right, it, it warns people to stay away from what's dangerous. It keeps, helps ships not to hit the shore, right? And it also helps them to navigate towards home. And that is what Jesus' disciples, the church, is supposed to do. We are supposed to help people stay away from danger and guide them towards their true home, which is found in Jesus, okay? But a church can make certain mistakes that destroy its ability to do those things. Our lampstands can go dark. Uh, our lighthouses can malfunction. And these messages from Jesus can help us to avoid those critical mistakes. Here's a quick review of what we've looked at so far. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the church in Ephesus, and Jesus' message to that church was essentially this. It was, we can believe all the right things, but if we don't have love for God and for other people, then our light will go out. You can believe everything correctly, have all the right doctrine, know all the truth, but if you don't have love, your church has a critical flaw, a deadly flaw. And then last week we looked at the letter to the church in Smyrna, and the message we got from that was essentially we must worship Jesus as Lord and nobody else, right? even if the decision to do that leads to suffering, to consequences. Now, that is a tough message, but Jesus is very clear. Be faithful to me. Even if the Roman Empire is demanding that you worship the emperor, even if they're threatening you with imprisonment or death, you don't play that game. You don't acquiesce to that. If a church's lampstand is going to stay lit, it has to be faithful in proclaiming, Jesus is my Lord, nobody else. I'll respect the emperor, but I will not worship him. Okay. So that's where we've been so far. And this week we're looking at Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum. 
So if you have a Bible, open up to Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. Let's uh, say a quick prayer before we get into this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these messages, and we pray that we would take them to heart, uh, that we would recognize that they have relevance for our church today, and I pray that even if what they have to say can be tough to hear, that you would open our hearts to be able to receive whatever it is that your spirit wants to tell us. Help us to listen and pay attention. In Jesus' name, amen. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. What does that mean? Well, back in those days, the sword was a symbol of the ability to execute judgment. Okay, so like emperors were usually um, portrayed as carrying a big sword. And so when this says that Jesus is the one who has the double-edged sword, it's saying the Roman Empire, they're not really the true judges. Okay, Jesus is the true judge. Okay, so these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. All right, there's a lot to talk about in there. So Jesus describes Pergamum in a very memorable way, doesn't he? As the place where Satan has his throne, the place where Satan lives much like Las Vegas or the DMV, right? <laughs> now, some of us might hear that and immediately imagine a big red guy with a pointy tail sitting on a chair overlooking the city. But I don't think that's really what Jesus means here. What he's probably saying is that Pergamum was the center of what's called the imperial cult. Remember, we've been talking about the imperial cult um, in the Roman Empire, at the time, the emperor saw himself as a god, and he thought that everyone else should recognize him as a god. So there were certain centers, temples, uh, throughout the empire where people would gather and they would do religious rituals in honor of the emperor. These were called the centers of the imperial cult. And Pergamum was probably the biggest worship center in the entire imperial cult. Pergamum was just really into emperor worship. Uh, they found coins from Pergamum, and these ancient coins say on them, like, this is the city of emperor worship. They brag that this is, this is where we have a temple to the emperor and where many people participate in worshiping the emperor. 
But in the midst of all this emperor worship, there was still a lighthouse. There was still a lampstand because there were followers of Jesus who just refused to participate in all of that. Even though in the past, at some point, things had gotten so bad that this guy Antipas uh, was put to death uh, for refusing to worship the emperor. Um, there have been Christians in Pergamum who have remained true to Jesus' name. But this church still has some problems. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. And what he says is there are people in the church, there are people who are faithful, but there are also people in the church who hold to what he calls the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So that raises the question, who were these people and what did they believe, right? Well, you may have noticed this is actually the second time that Jesus has talked about the Nicolaitans. He mentioned them in the letter to the Ephesians that we looked at two weeks ago, and I actually didn't say anything about it. We just read over it and didn't talk about it. Uh, This is what he said. He said to the church in Ephesus, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, Now, that letter doesn't give any indication as, as to what the practices of the Nicolaitans were. Clearly, the people in Ephesus knew, uh, but we don't get any clues there. But here, in the letter to Pergamum, we do get a clue as to what the problem was uh, of the Nicolaitans. Um, because Jesus compares the teachings of the Nicolaitans to the teachings of Balaam. Now, you might have heard those two things and thought, this is two different groups, right? The group that follows Balaam and the group that is the Nicolaitans. But what's actually going on here, if you look at the original language, is Jesus isn't saying there's two groups here. He's saying that the Nicolaitans are following the teaching of Balaam in the sense of the spirit of Balaam. Balaam was a guy, a bad guy in the Old Testament. Okay, He's not a contemporary uh, of the church in Pergamum. So you want to think followers of Balaam equal Nicolaitans, okay? Uh, So what we learn here is that the problem with the Nicolaitan group is that they seem to be okay with eating food sacrificed to idols and with sexual immorality, right? So I want to spend some time, a little bit of time, talking about those two things, eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. So, first one, eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, this one is a little hard for us to understand, right? Because when we go to buy food, we don't have to worry about whether or not it was sacrificed to an idol. That's not something that's on our radar. But in those days, uh, it was common for food to be dedicated to a false god uh, before it was served or sold. And if a person ate that food, it signaled to everyone around them that they were participating in the worship of whatever god that food had been dedicated to. So for people in Pergamum, probably the main opportunity they had to eat this kind of food would have been at the temple feasts. The temple of the emperor would hold these feasts, and people could come and eat the food. And in eating the food, they were participating in the worship of the emperor. So the reason that it was wrong to eat this food, it wasn't because there there was something about the food itself that was bad, but it was because of what eating that food communicated, right? In that time, in that place, eating that food communicated, the emperor is God, and I sit at his table. Okay, does that make sense? What the real problem here is? 
So one way of putting it is that the first real problem with this Nicolaitan group is that they did not feel a need to worship Jesus alone. That is, well, that's the worst way of putting it. The best way of looking at it is they, they didn't feel a need to make it clear to everybody else that they worship Jesus alone. Um, <clears throat> so one way of putting it, to put it in modern terms, is the Nicolaitans were guilty of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism. And Jesus is very clear here that he does not want us to be ambiguous about who we worship. He wants us to be very clear that we recognize him and him alone as our Lord and King. Now, just to be very clear, I want want to be very clear about this. That does not mean that he wants us to be disrespectful or rude to people who think differently than us, people from different religions, different belief systems. He, He still wants us to respect them, but he wants his church to present a consistent witness to the world that Jesus and Jesus alone is God and King. Now, I realize that in the culture that we live in right now, that can sound very, very narrow-minded, right? We live in a, in a diverse society, and there are people who think differently all around us. But let's not forget, the first century church in Rome also was surrounded by people who thought very different, differently from them, right? And yet they still held to this idea that Jesus alone is God and King, even though that belief could cost them tremendously. They still held on to that, and unless we hold on to that, our lamp will not stay lit. Our lighthouse will not keep blinking. I realize some of you might be here this morning, you might not be sure what you believe, and you might be thinking, well, why should I believe that Jesus alone is Lord and King? And if that's you, I want to say, you know what, that's a very legitimate question. I respect that you would ask that question. I don't think that you should ever accept anyone or anything as the ultimate authority in your life just blindly, right? That's kind of foolish to just accept something like that blindly. Too big, that's too big of a decision to just jump into the dark, ignorant, not knowing anything about it. Um, I just want to say, if that's you, personally, I believe that faith in Jesus does not and should not be completely blind. Uh, I put my faith in Jesus as my Lord and my King, uh, but I do that because I have reasons to do that. Um, They come from a variety of sources. They come from my own personal experiences. Those do matter. They come from the internal witness of the Bible. I find the Bible very compelling when I look at the whole story, put it all together, see how parts in the beginning prophesy parts that come later. They come from my study of history, and how Jesus influenced the world and his disciples influenced the world. They come from wrestling with philosophical questions. And all those things, those evidences come together and they create a a cumulative case for me so that my faith is not just some blind jump into the dark. You know, It it has basis for it. And I believe that if you are wondering, do I have reasons to see Jesus as my Lord and King? that you can pursue that question and you can discover that Christianity stands up to intellectual scrutiny. It can be a reasonable faith. Now, that doesn't mean that it can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt scientifically. That's not the way this sort of thing works. 
But it does not have to be a blind faith. It does not have to be, and it should not be, a blind faith. So if you have that question, pursue it, okay? Don't just ask it and then go, oh, there's no reason to think that. Follow, follow your curiosity and, and see where that leads. All right. Let's talk about the second problem with the Nicolaitans, which was sexual immorality. Now, we only have time to talk about this briefly, which means what I'm about to say is going to be inadequate to deal uh, with all the issues that are raised by this subject. So I just apologize for that in advance. But the first thing I want to say that I want to lead with, because I know the topic of sexual immorality can make us squeamish, is to remind us that our God is a forgiving God. He is a graceful God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that includes our sexual sins, right? That's not some special category that is beyond uh, God's forgiveness. And thank God for that, because I don't think any human being in the history of the world has handled their sexuality perfectly. I, I just don't think anyone's ever done that. Uh, especially when you consider that Jesus said that uh, our thought life is a problem, right? Our, our lust is sin, not just what we do, right? So please do not feel condemned by anything that I'm about to say, okay? But that said we need to recognize that an important element of Jesus' church is that it is supposed to teach and strive to uphold God's standards for sexually moral behavior. It's not, that's not a minor thing. Uh, it matters. And it grieves Jesus when his church is sexually immoral. Now, again, we don't have time to address every aspect of this question, how that works out practically and all that, but one thing that is very clear from the New Testament is that God wants sexual activity to be reserved for a relationship of lifelong commitment. And, of course, the official word that we use for that is marriage, right? Sex is meant to be the sign and the seal of a covenant relationship. And what is a covenant relationship? Um, you know, God made a covenant with his people. What is a covenant relationship? A covenant relationship is a relationship of committed faithfulness. It's a relationship of till death do us part kind of faithfulness. Now, I realize this is not a popular view in our culture right now. Uh, people kind of tend to see this as hopelessly outdated. But again, you know what? This wasn't a popular view in first century Rome, either. <laughs> not at all. If you know anything about history, those first century Romans, they were not prudes. Uh, not at all. So whether this view is popular or not, that's irrelevant. Because either way, it's important to see that Jesus wants his church to care about it, popular or not. Okay. Now again, I realize, if you have grown up in mainstream American culture, you might be thinking, this is just crazy. This, you know, reserving sex just for marriage. That's, that's weird. But when you really think about it, there is so much wisdom in God's design here. Uh, I really believe that if you think about it, 
the more that a culture as a whole separates sex from covenant relationship, the more that we divide those two things, there's a host of other problems that come up with that, that increase the more those two things separate. Um, the evidence suggests that the more we separate, the, separate those two things, the more unwanted pregnancies uh, we have, the more abortions we have, the more STDs we have, the more broken hearts we have, the more kids we have without fathers in their lives, right? And, and that in turn leads to more poverty. And the more divorces we have, the more sexual assaults, the more human trafficking, the more our uh, view of sex becomes separated from covenant faithfulness, the more we see an increase in all those things. And what Jesus wants his church to do in a very non-judgmental and gracious way is to model something better. You know, I was thinking about this topic recently, and I thought, you know, our culture right now tends to think that the one thing that makes a sexual relationship morally permissible is consent, right? And, you know, in the church, we should agree that consent is absolutely essential to any moral sexual relationship. Absolutely. But in the church, we should recognize that the consent that is essential is not just the consent between two sexual partners, but the consent of God, too. You know, if we recognize how important human consent is, which it is, then I think we should also recognize how important God's consent is, too. And when it comes to sexual relationships, God only consents if the relationship is one of faithfulness, covenant faithfulness. If that's a topic that stirs a lot of questions for you and you have, you want to talk to me about it, I'm happy to talk to you about it. So just know, I, like I said, my ability to cover all this is inadequate right now. So I leave you with that. And if you'd like to talk more after service, let me know. So, two Nicolaitan errors, religious pluralism and sexual immorality. These were problems in the church at Pergamum, and they're problems in the 21st century American church today, too. And I would say that these are problems that exist in every denomination uh, of the Christian church. But I do want to say, I think these particular sins are especially tempting in churches that might be classified as a bit more progressive today. And please don't misunderstand, I am not condemning all Christians or churches that identify as progressive. I myself listen to a lot of Christian thinkers and authors on a broad spectrum of the church, from really conservative to more progressive, and I find that there's good stuff all across the spectrum. But we need to be careful. You know, today our culture pulls us towards religious pluralism and sexual immorality. And we need to remember that Jesus wants his church to recognize him and him alone as Lord. And he wants his church to model sexual morality. And if we don't do these things, our lamp might go out. 
All right, so we've talked about some tough stuff so far. We're actually, we're done with the tough stuff. And what I want to focus on for the rest of the sermon is actually the part of the message to Pergamum that I get the most excited about. I want to look at Jesus' promises to those who overcome. Uh, this, is, this part is so fascinating to me. Uh, let's look again at what he says. He says, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So two things there, right? Hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on that. What is that all about, right? Okay, first, hidden manna. When Jesus uses that phrase, he is, he is drawing on some rich imagery uh, from over a thousand years of Israel's history. Some of you probably know the story of the Exodus, right? Uh, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, and God freed them from that. And when he brought them up out of slavery, they spent a period of time wandering in the desert. And during that time, God miraculously provided food for them. Uh, they would go out of their tents in the morning, and there would be something on the ground that appeared at night, and they were able to gather it up and eat it. And they didn't know what it was, but the Hebrew word for it is manna, which means literally, what is it? And according to the book of Hebrews, some of this manna was taken, and it was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And I know the Ark of the Covenant, you, you might be familiar with that, you might not, that's a whole other thing. But the Ark of the Covenant was this uh, wooden chest covered in gold, and inside of it were the tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. Now, you might remember that after the temple was built in Jerusalem, the Holy Temple, the Ark of the Covenant was put inside the temple in what was called the Holy of Holies. So think about this. The Israelites have a holy city, right? The city of Jerusalem. And in that holy city is a holy temple. And in that holy temple is a, holy, a holiest of holies place. And in that holy of holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there is the hidden manna. So when Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, it's like he's saying, I am going to give you access to the holy of holies. I'm going to let you in on the mystery. I'm going to show you my glory. I am going to give you the, what is it that you long for so much? You know, all of us, we have this deep longing in ourselves for something that this world can never give us, right? That's what we talked about in the series on Ecclesiastes. We have this holy ache. We, we know that the, the desires within us just can't be satisfied by the world. And there's a part of us that's like, I know I want something, but I just don't know what it is. What is it? And I, I, I hear in this promise Jesus saying that what our hearts long for is going to be satisfied because he's going to give us the hidden manna, the secret what is it that we long for. So that's the first promise. The second promise I find even more fascinating than the first. Okay, He says, 
I will give you a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What is that about? Well, let me tell you, if you try to research what is the significance of a white stone in first century Pergamum, you get no less than seven possible answers. And no certainty as to which Jesus may have had in mind. Uh, so here's one. Here's an example. In ancient trials, the jurors would vote on someone's guilt or innocence by placing either a black stone or a white stone in a box. And the white stone represented innocence. The black stone represented a verdict of guilt. So it's possible what Jesus is saying here is he's referring to that and he's saying, I'm going to give you a white stone. I'm going to pronounce you as innocent, guilt-free. Right? So that's one possibility. Uh, another possibility is in those days, that those were the days of the gladiators, who would sometimes fight to the, to the death in the arena. Right? And if a gladiator survived long enough, eventually he would be discharged. And when he was discharged, he would be given a stone with his name on it. So it's possible that this stone that Jesus is referring to here is representing the fact that one day we will be discharged from the spiritual battle uh, that we are fighting in. We'll get relief from it. So those are two possibilities. There's at least five more. So we can't know for sure what Jesus had in mind. The significance of the white stone is not for certain. But what I think is more certain is the significance of the new name. Jesus is speaking to each of us as individuals here, and he's saying, if you stick with me, in the end, you will know who you truly are. You will know who you truly are. You know, over the course of our lives, we try to answer this question, who am I? Who am I? And we develop a sense of identity. And we do that in many ways, right? We, we learn about our family and our ancestry. We learn about our country and our ethnicity. Uh, we take cues from our culture, cultural expectations and that sort of thing. We learn what we're good at and what we're not. We hear what other people say about us, for good or for bad, and then we kind of work that into our view of ourselves. Uh, some of us go through seasons of time, usually when we're young, where we're kind of just exploring and people say, you know, oh, he's finding himself or she's finding herself, right? And we ask ourselves questions like, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to do? What's my role in life? And over time, as we answer those questions, we develop a sense of self. We develop an identity. Now, some of us develop a pretty positive sense of self. Some of us, unfortunately, develop a pretty negative sense of self. And some of us struggle to form any strong sense of self. Sometimes people, people say things like, she has no idea who she is, right? But whatever identity we develop, Jesus indicates here that that identity will always fall short of who we truly are. But one day we will know who we truly are. We will know who God created us to be and nothing will get in the way of us seeing ourselves as we truly are. No cultural expectations, no stereotypes, no harmful comments from other people, 
none of our own sin, none of our addictions or bad coping mechanisms. When we're done with this life and we enter into God's everlasting kingdom, God promises his people a totally accurate sense of who they were created to be. And not just in the broad sense of as a human being, but as a unique individual person. I don't know about you, but I like the sound of that. That's a very intriguing promise, isn't it? I want to know who I truly am. Now, I do want us to notice this promise, it is conditional, right? It's, it's for those who overcome. So in other words, this is for those who hold to faith in Jesus, who don't let that faith go, for those who continue to recognize that Jesus is Lord and King. And what I want us to recognize here is that there is a relationship between knowing God and knowing ourselves. That's what this is saying. The theologian John Calvin said something similar. He said some things I I don't agree with, but he said some good stuff too. And uh, one thing he said is this, man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. In other words, we can't really know ourselves until we know the one who made us. If we want to know who we truly are, we have to get to know God and then listen to what God tells us about ourselves. So in in your quest for a sense of self, for your identity, don't just look within. Don't just listen to your culture. Right? Don't just listen to what other people say about you. Listen to what God says about you. Listen to that first. You know what I find so beautiful about this promise? Is it tells us that God really has made each one of us special and unique. God doesn't want a whole bunch of clones. He's made each one of us unique. Because he says that the new name that we're going to get, it's known only to us and to God, right? Which tells us the name he's giving, it's special, right? If, if it was known only to us, then it can't be a name that anybody else is getting, right? And that tells us that when God made each of us, he designed each of us to be someone that no one else can be. You are created to glorify God in a way that nobody else can. He created you uniquely, and he loves you as a unique person, and he wants to redeem you as a unique person. To be the unique person that he made you to be for all of eternity. Now, I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I think perfectly describes this. And uh, I'm just going to read it, and then I'm going to pray. And I realize that It might feel like your brain is just barely understanding what he's saying. That's okay. That's what happens to me, too, when I read it. But I'll just read it. I'll leave it up there. You can think about it as we uh, have our song of reflection. And uh, I will close with that. So C.S. Lewis says this. Be sure that the ins and outs of your individuality are no mystery to him. And one day, they will no longer be a mystery to you. The mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing 
if you had never seen a key, and the key itself a strange thing, if you had never seen a lock, your soul has a curious shape because it is a hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance, or a key to unlock one of the doors in the house with many mansions. For it is not humanity in the abstract that is to be saved, but you, you, the individual reader, John Stubbs or Janet Smith, blessed and fortunate creature, your eyes shall behold him and not another's. All that you are, sins apart, is destined, if you will let God have his good way, to utter satisfaction. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have made each one of us unique. And Lord, I pray that as we strive to understand who you've created us to be, that we would listen first to you and to what you say about us, Lord. And I pray that in this life we would be able to get as close as possible to being exactly the unique person that you created us uh, to be, each one of us to be. But Lord, we know that we're never going to uh, completely be that person this side of heaven. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would look forward to having it revealed who we truly are, um, knowing our true identity fully and completely, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would look forward to that hidden manna, Lord, that secret what is it that can satisfy the longing of our hearts that you offer to us, Lord. And Lord, I pray for your church, Lord. I pray for our church. I pray that we would not fall into the ways of the Nicolaitans, Lord, that you would help us to faithfully proclaim that you and you alone are Lord and King and, and to offer every area of our lives up to um, your authority, Lord, in, including our sexual lives, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.